0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Environmental Studies channel of the New Books Networks podcast. I'm Padmapriya Vidya Govindarajan, and I'm thrilled to host Dr. Rafiko Ruiz today to chat about his new book, Slow Disturbance Infrastructural Mediation on the Settler Colonial Research Frontier, published in 2021 by Duke University Press. Rafiko Ruiz is the Associate Director at the Canadian Center for Architecture, and in addition to this book, he has, uh, he has co-edited Saturation and Elemental Politics. His research examines the relationships between architecture, infrastructure, and the environment across the circumpolar world. Slow Disturbance documents and analyzes the different media that were critical to the operation of the Green of the Grenfell mission that resulted in the extensive construction of medical infrastructure through the uh, to the coast of Northern Newfoundland and Labrador. The text plays close attention to the processes and operations of this infrastructure build out through a combination of artifacts produced by the mission and interviews with people who had relationships with the mission. In doing so, the book studies the North Atlantic settler colonialism as a mediating project through the infrastructure it relies on and the experience of the emergent resource frontier. To this end, Each chapter of the book looks at how an infrastructural zone came to be a part of the missions reform process. I'm delighted to have you here with us. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for the invitation, Padma. I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah. Um, So I like to begin by asking authors how they imagine their audience to be, um, especially since uh, environmental studies is an interdisciplinary project to begin with, just like your text. Um, Maybe you could start by tracing the significance of what you call the minor history of the Grenfell mission. So who did you intend for this story to speak to? And what does it mean for you to locate your intervention within environmental media studies? Like, what are your stakes within that?
1: Yeah. um, Well, as you know, I guess as someone immersed in a PhD project, and this was where this book originated for myself as well, Um, it's sometimes hard to project that far into the future (laughs) and you hope to have a kind of readership and a public for your work and um, in my case that that certainly came in a way it came a bit later and as you'll discover yourself in a couple years uh, when you you do the work of transforming dissertation into a monograph um, it really it accelerates I would say kind of process of public accountability and um, for myself this really started to revolve around a broader um, broader efforts at uh, documenting uh, critiquing capturing in a way um, settler infrastructural interventions and experiences within the larger project of settler colonialism, in my case, in what's now Canada, um, and trying to think about how embedded within that there could be a kind of method uh, available to uh, media study scholars, uh, scholars in postcolonial studies and indigenous studies, a kind of way of apprehending how settler... Experiences and infrastructures have come into being sort of in tandem, um, come into being alongside one another and through one another. And so for me, um, that was really, you know, I started out working on this actually like super odd research project on an evangelical Protestant medical mission from the late 19th century. on the margins operating what on what was then the sort of margins of the british empire um and it was a it was an effort to really try to document um to document what as you said stoller calls a kind of minor history uh, but that holds holds in itself um, a story around infrastructural mediation so the the lives and affects that through the settler colonial project, infrastructure, the building of infrastructure, can make apparent. So for me, in terms of the broader public, who I was hoping to be invited in through this book, it was really um, without maybe with uh, like necessarily a public in mind, it was more um thinking about a kind of kind of experience of settler accountability, uh, maybe particularly, again, within my own settler context of Canada, um, and trying to think about how, um, by telling what I describe as these kind of infrastructural stories through the book, um, settlers could come to an understanding of how they benefit from very long and often concealed practices, processes, and really like landscapes of dispossession, everyday landscapes. And so it was really trying to come, what I've come to actually like sort of more think about in retrospect after writing the book and uh, engaging with it in other forums is really thinking about it as participating in a broader sort of societal shift towards settler accountability as a kind of experience that needs to be. Um, maybe more centered and valued and given importance by settlers um, on who benefit from and live on indigenous lands in different contexts. So, so yeah, that was a bit what I've come to see, I guess, as a, as a sort of broad public for this book. But I hope in terms of um, in the second part of your question around environmental media studies in particular, and it's really exciting to see so much compelling work emerging out of this it's really kind of nascent subfield in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, your, your own position, positioning your own work within that subfield. Um, it really, um, my hope was really to think about um, a kind of relational model for, uh, for media studies and how uh, mediation is such a lively process and attending to how we can track Different phenomena across across these processes of mediation, you know, extending to non-human life worlds is really is really, I think, what's maybe at the, the core of the most exciting work in environmental media studies today. So in your case, the monsoon, um, and really trying, yeah, trying to understand how um, thinking, you know, of course, very broadly ar- around definitions of media practices of communication, and then what sort of, through those um, different relational dynamics, makes uh, for a much wider circle of, as I said earlier, accountability, um, notions of reciprocity, solidarity, and how these can all really, in a sense, um, yeah, become part of the discursive, analytical, and in a way sort of research domain of environmental media studies. So I think that was a bit um, yeah, that was a bit the ambition of situating this book within that within that um, subfield, but also a sort of larger, larger uh, research formation, I guess you could say.
0: Okay, yeah, Um, that makes a lot of sense. And as you as you're indicating, it's a very reflective process, um, writing this book and also engaging with this process of accountability and such accountability. And I'm glad you brought up mediation because that was going to be my next question. So you say in your book that you offer a situated history of infrastructural mediation. So for our listeners, would you say uh, what would you say? about what mediation means to you here. You talk about infrastructural mediation, you talk about living mediation. Specifically, how do you analyze mediation in relation to environmental extraction while also thinking of the properties of conventional media technologies? Yeah,
1: for sure. Um, I mean, of course, there's, you know, You look up mediation in the OED. (laughs) You know, there's this sort of first layer, non-media studies definition, which is, of course, you know, more grounded in a kind of um, process of negotiation, sort of mediation between two parties, which which isn't, of of course, the the sense that you know you you and I understand when we're thinking about um, how resource frontier comes into being through you know what I call infrastructural mediation um, and um, so for me and I and I it's a orientation and understanding uh, of mediation that I share with scholars like Sarah Kember and Joanna Zelinska, who are really um, yeah really influential for my my approach into building this notion of infrastructural mediation especially through their notion of living mediation is Um, And so in their sense of the term, they really see it as like uh, becoming with the world. Uh, So it's in very broad terms, like how through uh, being in the world and through different technologies, we become with the world through mediation. For me, uh, where I center it more so uh, through this concept of infrastructural mediation is to understand how in this particular, and this is why it's situated, in this particular settler colonial project in what was then the British colony of Newfoundland, the building of infrastructure itself um, participated in the reform of settler fisher folk lives. So this was, um, yeah, largely uh, British uh, settlers, French as well, to some extent, who established themselves on the island of Newfoundland um, dating back to the 15th century. And so by, you know, the late 19th century, which is when my story starts and Wilfred Grenfell's British uh, medical doctor and evangelical Protestant missionary <clears throat> who was sent by the Royal National Mission to deep sea fishermen to Newfoundland to quote unquote minister to uh, uh, this population was referred to as the toilers of the deep and sort of heroicized in many ways as providing fish uh, to, the, to the empire. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, the work that the Grenfell and the Grenfell mission, the mission he had eventually found, would do was really around trying to account for, um, for the, the very lives themselves of settler folk, settler fisher folks and how they could be perpetuated. So building infrastructure and participating and designing this process of infrastructural mediation was thinking about how you could attend to and support fisher folk lives and experiences by building hospitals, airstrips, nursing stations, schools, uh, you know, light industries, all these sorts of um, infrastructures that could, that could support the larger settler colonial project. And in, many ways and in uh probably in environmental media studies in particular you know the expansion of uh the media concept largely through john durham peters um very prominent media studies scholar uh, now based at yale it was really an attempt to account for um ways of thinking about the resource frontier itself as a kind of medium where you could make out um, make out these dynamics by tracing um, these histories of uh, settler dispossession through the sort of traces left on the land itself. So these are the architectures, infrastructures that settlers built, and that, um, you know, really, in a way, really permeate and constitute our present moment. So infrastructural mediation, the, the concept of mediation itself is a way of navigating the, um, of navigating where we are in a way in the in the present and how settler accountability um, can or needs you know in the, at its best in a way needs to actually read through uh, into the past uh, through these settler infrastructures in order to make out where they come from why who built them who benefits from them etc and trying mm-hmm. and actually it's the it's the concept it's the process of mediation itself. Uh, that lets us, lets us see that as a sort of way of navigating those dynamics.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so then can we talk a little bit more about what you're characterizing as the emergent research frontier and what that means methodologically for other scholars who wish to engage in similar processes? So my question on method is sort of, How are you holding together and doing so much in this context? On the one hand, you're tracing the operation of um, infrastructural arrangements, you're engaging with different temporal registers in this process, Um, and your larger goal is to study settler colonialism, which as you say, say, drawing on Wolf, um, is a structure and not an event. So what does it mean methodologically to hold all these things together and study an emergent research frontier? What is your intervention there? Yeah,
1: that's an excellent question, Padma. Um, and it's something, you know, I've, I've struggled with in building the book. Because <laughs> in a lot of ways, like, uh, and I'm curious maybe to hear your, your thoughts on it, you know. Um, I really wanted the medium of the book itself to kind of register as part of the method. <laughs> uh, so it's not, it doesn't have it, like an entirely... Unconventional structure, I would say, the book. But um, in a, in a sense, um, especially some of these sort of, I guess you could think of them in the as a kind of genre of reportage. These the way it was sections that really give over certain sections of the book to kind of um, firsthand accounts by. Um, current residents of some of the small towns where the Grenfell Mission operated, St. Anthony, which was the headquarters primarily, which is in what's now present-day northern Newfoundland, the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in Canada. And um, these sections, the way it was sections, um, yeah, are, are a form of reportage in the sense that there are interviews that are conducted with residents now largely like in their 70s and 80s who experienced firsthand the Grenfell mission. So the Grenfell mission operated into the 1980s um, in these communities and is still like very much present, um, obviously through things like there's the Grenfell Museum in an interpretation center in St. Anthony. Uh, They're important sort of tourist sites that are part of the local tourist economy. But it was actually more in this, on the af- sort of more affective side of the of the register that I was interested in, in understanding how these legacies of um, sort of like self-help, of a kind of community-based uh, cooperative financial system that the mission implemented, and this was dating back to sort of the early 20th century, how these were still present in the community in different ways. And so one way of doing that was was to understand how settler infrastructure building, in a way, what it ultimately, in some ways, gives rise to and creates in this very long-term, thinking about over a century, is the the sort of experiences of, of a kind of settler affect located in place and in homes. Um, and in what is ultimately like a very long and drawn out process of, of dispossession of indigenous peoples who inhabited these lands originally. And so that's a sort of roundabout way of getting um, to your question around the, the book itself as establishing a kind of experience of, um, of what settler infrastructure is and what it Does So, of course, it walks you, each chapter is dedicated to kind of different infrastructural project, um, whether it be the hospital, cooperative system, this experimental aerial surveying technique called oblique aerial photography, or um, the production of documentary films and and, um, fiction films um, that the the mission participated in. And in some ways... um, I really, yeah, was, I had the ambition of the, the book itself trying to bring readers along through these four different experiences of infrastructure, but then also um, coming up against and uh, opening for interpretation the voices of um, present day settlers, even if they might not necessarily self describe in that way, uh, in these communities and trying to understand. Um, understand how you can um yeah you can under you can experience infrastructural mediation in the present through the voices of these community members so it uh, to me that's if if i'm going back to like this early car con- earlier conversation we had around notion of settler accountability it's also it's trying to open that that pathway up maybe um for yeah for People, um, settlers in particular, who need to learn more about why they are where they are, what they benefit from, and who, um, you know, who, in a sense, has um, paid the price for not being on those lands, necessarily.
0: Yeah, I completely see what you're saying, though, about the book being a part of your process, because I felt like as you were analyzing and, and offering these like uh, descriptions in the chapters, you were offering these images, these maps that one could trace along with you and along with your analysis. And that became a part of the reader's own process as well. Um, And so and I'm sure you've been asked this before. So um, hopefully I'm not putting you too much on the spot. But how did you make the decisions about what to retain and what to offer the reader um, as part of this journey? and What were the conversations that you decided to prioritize? And are there conversations that you wish you'd had the space to have within this book? I
1: mean, I think, um, sorry, I have have relentless Teams notifications, but hopefully they aren't too loud for us. (laughs) That was just one that popped up. Um, It's closed, but somehow it still returns. Um, so I think, um, so really like one register that I worked hard on myself, like, again, this really began during my PhD work and, you know, we can, I'll describe it as fieldwork, even if I really didn't, you know, I don't necessarily think of it as such or think of it as a different kind of fieldwork. but, um, it really began with like the photographic project that accompanied, um, yeah, that accompanied this, um, this larger uh, initiative. I mean, it was a way for me of, um, of in a sense, like creating, um, and this, in this I was really inspired by the work of uh, Peter Van Wyck, who's a um, media studies scholar at Concordia University here in Montreal. And um, what he called in this book, The Highway of the Atom, sort of territorial archive. Um, So if you go out on the land and think about it as uh, the product of long-term processes initiated by settler colonialism, what do you see and how do you capture it in a sense? And so a lot of the photographs that I took um, are really um, in a way, Uh, capturing these kind of like settler monuments um, to this process. And um, even, uh, and it's very intentional, even a lot of the archival material and like any missionary enterprise, you know, the Grenfell mission had a huge archival footprint. Um, the, The archival material that's reproduced in the book is similarly, Um, reproduce from the perspective of sort of like my singular eye embodied in a singular moment in the archive. So it isn't meant to be a kind of perfect reproduction at super high resolution, but rather it's meant to be a kind of imperfect record of where, um, where these like trails, these infrastructural stories lead in the present. So they're kind of like, um, yeah, they're kind of, in a sense, artifacts themselves of trying to investigate where settler infrastructure, settler infrastructure building leads. Um, and so in a lot of ways, um, I obviously wish I could have included more photographs, <laughs> also color photographs would have been nice, um, in, in some ways. And also, uh, if I'm going even further down that road, I mean, uh, I had The ambition of a a kind of different graphic quality, like just from a design perspective for the book itself. Now I would say in it is present form, working with amazing graphic designers at Duke, but obviously with like many limitations that one might not have, I don't know, in more like an art book context or something else, um, is this is, I would say the kind of like compressed version of the book. And, um, I would have uh, liked to, in a sense, give almost like equal weight or more weight to the photographs and to these archival artifacts by letting them, in a sense, like um, have a more communicative relationship one to the other across the actual pages of the book in some ways. And again, like I talked about the book itself as a kind of uh, experience of infrastructural mediation. um, And I think that would have been, yeah, that would have been for granted if um, if it had been like a different format, a larger book, uh, a way of having like images speak to one another in in different in a different arrangement. But then, in terms of the conversations that I didn't have um, that could have been included in this book, um, I think. Um, like to give you an example, I mean, I spent some time in Northwest River. So this is a small community outside of Happy Valley Goose Bay, which is the largest town, small city in Labrador. And uh, across from Northwest River, which was uh, after St. Anthony, which is on the island of Newfoundland proper, um, Northwest River was the sort of base of operations for the Grenfell Mission in Labrador. And even today, there are many, many uh, buildings that, um, that show um, these traces of the Grenfell Mission's influence, um, and yeah, of the, the way that they, they created these uh, communities and affected local life in a sense. Uh, and, but uh, um, across the river, it separates um, um, Northwest River from Sheshishi. Uh, so Sheshashi is uh, one of the largest Innu communities in Labrador. And, uh, conversations I wish I'd had, it was partly, partly around time, but mainly around not feeling necessarily authorized or positioned to go into a community like Chishishi and ask community leaders or others about their experiences or their, uh, parents or grandparents' experiences of the Grenfell mission. And in a way it was, you know, that, that applies for many different contexts throughout the book but it was a way of, I felt it as a kind of inherent limitation to thinking about tracing settler affects uh, through this process of infrastructural mediation. And so in a sense, sort of limiting myself to understanding the kind of settler life world, uh, not at the expense of uh, indigenous life worlds and indigenous voices. And in this case, Inu experiences of the mission, but as a way of creating again this maybe goes to the experience of the book as a kind of um yeah a kind of register of that of that process of infrastructural mediation and what it leads to but a way of um yeah it can take containing that life world the settler life world and having to be almost claustrophobic in a sense um and of course it would have been a very different a very different project had i Had I included, um, yeah, the voices of uh, Inuit Inu or Mi'kmaq or other indigenous community members in the book. So that was something, that's something I've been thinking about more and more now, having it, you know, as a sort of contained narrative now, as a book does, you know, as it's fixed and (laughs) uh, is a kind of record of its own. So, yeah, that's something that I've thought uh, more and more about lately. We took it
0: all. yeah, I feel like that's what happens when you, you know, release a book into the world. It, it feels like a final product, but it's so much more than what it can be. And I think, like you're saying, it's an important choice you made, um, that this is the story and this is the narrative you want to stay with. And it, it feels like it is honest to what you were saying about settler accountability and producing settler accountability there um, and, and have that be center stage. So I, I appreciate that. And I, I feel it. Um, I think also it would have been a very cool project if you had been able to include like um, color photographs and had it be more interactive and stuff, maybe a future project, I don't know if that's, if that's possible. I can't imagine um, what the size or the quality of that book would be, but it sounds exciting for sure. Um, maybe then, uh, since we've spoken a lot about the human in your interface, but also drawing on, on your refrain of the fish came first, Uh, I wonder if you could speak a little bit more uh, on the significance of the non-human in your analysis. And and I hate to say human-non-human interactions as if there has to be a binary, and that's how we understand it. Um, But, but, you know, uh, what does it mean to study the non-human? And specifically, your use of slowness here, um, drawing on Anna Singh's conceptualization of slowness there as well. Uh, uh, on slow disturbance, but also when you bring this conversation in parts of the book, this conversation with uh, Rob Nixon's idea of slowness and slow violence. So how is it that you understand the non-human through this metaphor of slowness within your text?
1: Um, Yeah, one way that I've thought about the role of Fish in this larger story is through the kind of shifting Of temporal horizons that non human phenomena open for us, I think, us as humans, (laughs) Uh, who are like very narrative creatures, right? And so, um, in I, of course, open the book thinking about fish as themselves, you know, leaving a kind of archaeological record. Um, And uh, if through settler colonialism, settler colonialism's effects, um, an indigenous group like the Beatuk, uh, who were uh, in many ways like the original uh, caretakers of the island of what's now Newfoundland. Um, And they were rendered extinct through the arrival of European settlers. You can think about um, the archaeological record and a a sort of extension of ancestral remains through um, that, that in a sense make uh, non-human and human worlds cohabitate in different ways. You know, we're all <laughs> as species will eventually, you know, return to the earth in some in some ways and leave different kinds of records uh, that that communicate that can serve as media for future generations. So it's sort of reading reading our environments in that way. As you suggested, you know, makes this boundary, this binary human on human, um, start to be a bit blurrier, and start to be, and starts to maybe show the productiveness of centering a process like mediation in thinking about how particular environments come into being, and how extraction is um, a process that accelerates and renders often very violent. Um, phenomena across these different environments. Um, so the fish in in this story are really um, are really meant to, of course, proceed, uh, precede, uh, like precede um, all human intervention <laughs> in this world. You know, the the colony of Newfoundland uh, at its very earliest was really treated as a kind of um, Giant stage, so stage uh, or fishing vessel stage was really like a sort of uh, man-made structure, often made out of wood, that um, settler fisher folk would use to cure and dry uh, fish, primarily cod, in this uh, in this part of uh, the British Empire, and um, they were built as kind of like temporary structures, structures that could be dismantled quickly, um, that could be. Uh, made quickly and inexpensively, um, so obviously not with like um, really durable or permanent materials. And so um, the island itself, by British law, uh, for several centuries, um, was really treated as a kind of fishing ground. So even the the land the land uh, um, settlers were in theory. Um, um, forbidden from building permanent structures on it, and so um, and so. In a sense, um, the the very um, the very reason they were there was merely to extract fish. So it was really like a kind of um, like today. You know, you have these super uh, long distance fishing trawlers that go through um, different oceans around the world. And it, it's in a sense like that, that sort of arc of extraction uh, that in this case was part of the larger British Imperial project. Um, and so in the book, the fish are meant to be this kind of like or- originary um, impetus to move towards building a, uh, the building the, the extractive frontier, the resource frontier. And um, it's really uh, significant and specific to uh, the experiences of settlement on the island of what's now Newfoundland, where in 1992, uh, due to, I mean, it's a bit not definitively proven in scientific record, but almost Certainly, <laughs> uh, due to overfishing, uh, the government declared the provincial government declared a cod moratorium. So this was like a, basically like a, a stopped all commercial fishing of cod specifically um, on the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, and so really like the it's described as a sort of collapse of the cod fishery, and so in some ways this um, this particular fish species is made out in the book as um as both the kind of like um ambient condition if you want to call it that that brought settlers to the island of newfoundland and then through this process of slow disturbance which is part of the larger process of um becoming settled you know becoming um of building up and um rendering long-term the extractive frontier. Um, So as a result, what becomes disturbed is of course, um, not only uh, obviously like uh, the original dispossession of indigenous peoples, but also the very environments themselves uh, sort of suffer from what I call in the book, this promise of extraction that is always sort of open-ended, always um, there to be fulfilled, and so, yeah, the promise of extraction then creates and unfolds over time, yeah, to get more to your question around the temporality of this of this process um, into into a sort of condition of disturbance, and if for me and in the book, non-human phenomena just so clearly operate at a distinct temporal scale, and I think the disturbance um and now with global warming um it becomes you know i think part of the the problem is this kind of like event based nature of you know accelerated uh, uh weather events let's say and yet um i think like a process like industrial scale extraction um needs to be, yeah, needs to be read through the, the very, um, sometimes, um, what can take centuries, but will ultimately, because it's, you know, this, we could say, you know, the fisher the cod fishery at this, in an imperial sense dates back to the 15th century. So over, you know, five centuries, six centuries where ultimately, you know, this disturbance leads, um, is this, is then a sort of story of collapse. And so slow disturbance, is trying to track how, yeah, uh, settler colonial project can you can you can figure out in a way how it contributes to that to that story of collapse.
0: Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wonder though, when you're talking about um, infrastructural mediation of this this settler colonial frontier, you're also talking about The mission's role. When you talk about the mission's role in shaping financial systems, right? You're not just talking about infrastructure there. You're talking about cooperation and care as outcomes of this infrastructure of these infrastructural practices. But they are being channeled in services at local colonialism. So there's an almost like ideological component there to these infrastructural worlds. So maybe you could speak a little bit to that as well.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. I think um, yeah there is, and that's uh, out of the I guess four, the four treatments of settler infrastructure in the book that is certainly you could say the sort of most immaterial maybe <laughs> and it's um, it was um, I mean ultimately you know the introduction of a system of cooperative finance was in some ways like a, a way to ensure the longevity of settlement you know it was it it came about through like a kind of like crisis of um what was called the truck system so this is like a non-cash-based economy where settler fisher folk would trade their like a kind of barter system trade their often it was cod uh their um dried cod to local merchant and in return receive Goods uh, of various kinds to basically allow them to continue fishing for another season, and this cycle would continue. And often, it was more of a debt-based cycle because their catch wouldn't quite cover the inflated costs of goods, and so ultimately, it becomes a kind of form of indentured servitude because uh, there's no um, yeah, there's no possibility of finding another buyer for your for your goods, and so you're yeah, you become. Uh, reliant on uh, the single merchant, who was then rep- representative of a larger merchant interest in that context, um, and so it, at the base of it, and as um, yeah, another dimension of the book that I talk about was really the when thinking about in this case evangelical uh, evangelical Protestant medical mission and their you know their definition of good works and what you know religion itself could do in the, in the world in a material sense was of course, to like, to just build, (laughs) to build hospitals, to build nursing stations and to actually care very directly for fisher folk bodies, Uh, bodies that were in this moment in particular, after several sort of failed seasons of the, of the fishery um, were in, yeah, were in pretty uh, dire conditions. And so, even though there like the cooperative system was established as a way of gaining independence uh, relatively for the fishermen to have like direct to market access and was really and um, in, also inspired by the cooperative uh, cooperative movement in Manchester uh, this was a little bit later in the 1920s and 1930s like the Uh, In comparison to when um, the cooperative system was introduced in Newfoundland, like in around nineteen oh five or Southern Labrador, particularly in Red Bay, Um, it was really uh, in the what I also like try to not try to not lose sight of even. And you're totally right. This was a kind of like immaterial form of infrastructural mediation was like creating uh, a system within which they could, um, the fisher folk could sell fish direct to market, let's say even more so than the, you know, of course the boats that they relied on, they ultimately had like a dedicated boat, uh, that would t- bring their catch, um, was in a way this can condition of the, of settler fisher folk bodies themselves. So in, in some ways, like this maybe something I maybe even don't highlight, um, strongly enough in the chapter was really the, the. The, the the disconnect of um or the I don't know what the right word is but like the experience for officials uh from from the Royal National Mission Deep Sea fishermen, but also just British government officials going through the colony and witnessing the poverty and the hardships and the the bodies themselves of white fisher folks and the important that they were white and important, important that they were British and colonists, and thinking about them as uh, you know, a very racialized group that belongs and that is deserving of um, of care. And so, yeah, I think it's um, yeah, it's a really really nice point that um, uh, bodies, ships, um, the you know, cash ledgers are all part of a kind of infrastructural system. Um, but then it's the kind of uh, I think, and this is where I find the work of Lauren Berlant so compelling, but I think she described it, describes it as kind of patterning of social form. And so how that how that is ultimately accomplished, this and again, maybe thinking about Sarah Kember and Joanna Zelinska's notion of living mediation is, and this is even applies, I think, in a historical register, is thinking about um, uh, yeah, the, these kinds of, um, everyday dynamics that were created by these systems and the ways they lived through them and settlers could navigate them and that is, yeah, that is directly implicating, uh, something like the, well, one, the, the, this sort of, um, truck system that then got transformed by and into the cooperative system that the Grenfell mission introduced. So this is a kind of, yeah, it's a kind of liveliness that attending to these these different processes lets you see.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, That might be the last of my questions on the book itself. So just to round out this episode, maybe you could tell us a little bit in the year since this book's been published. What projects have you been working on? And what are your upcoming projects?
1: Definitely. so, of course, alongside it, uh, this book was published in May and then I believe in October, the Saturation Elemental Politics collection came out also with Duke. Uh, that was co-edited with uh, Melody Jew, who's a media studies scholar at UC Santa Barbara, who also has an amazing book. If people who are listening to this want to check it out called Wild Blue Media. Uh, yeah, and, um, and so, of course, all of... And speaking of temporality, these, you know, these two projects are, of course, anchored a few years back in the past, (laughs) as they take a little while to come, come into the world. Uh, but saturation is really amazing collaborative project to think through with melody and to really, in some of the ways, uh, you know, it's thinking about quite maybe in a more theoretical vein, like thinking about, you know, the relational. Constitution of settler infrastructure. Thinking about how phenomena um, open up different temporal horizons and blur this distinction between human and non-human binaries. Um, saturation, you know, we describe it as a kind of material heuristic and a way of um, tracking tracking phenomena that um, that. Um, uh, that how do we put it up to remember essentially that sort of like coexist in a similar environment and we track um through um of a phase change of uh, threshold and precipitate and really trying to see how phenomena uh through large some often through the effects of global warming but not only uh, need to be attended to across these different Uh, States through which they transition. So it's really, yeah, trying to be attentive uh, to a kind of unfolding uh, in time and space, uh, sometimes accelerating, sometimes slowing down, uh, when you're trying to think about a kind of saturated situation. Um, And there are really exciting chapters in the book that touch on um, everything from like the oil barrel as a kind of unit of measurement that, um, that in uh, Jean-Claude and Christo's work, kind of commentary on the condition of saturation of oil in the, or scarcity of oil in the 1970s, and then going all the way through to um, a really excellent chapter on uh, the concept of enclosure and thinking about the ocean as a kind of saturated uh commodity space. Um this is Max Ritz's chapter uh in the book. And so yeah, saturation merged alongside slow disturbance, but um yeah something I've been working on for a long time <laughs> uh dating back to sort of PhD years, really like going way back to like 2010, is a book um now called uh, Face State Earth, Ice at the Ends of Climate Change. And this is going to be a book on, uh, you know, if slow disturbance is a book about settler infrastructure stories, Face State Earth is a book about um, ice stories. And so what these are is thinking about, again, maybe through sort of, narratives of disturbance, but in this case, what I call phase state earth. So this is thinking about now under the conditions of global warming and specifically through the phase state of ice. So like water in its solid form, how we've entered an era where the sort of predictability of the cycle of going through, in this case, the hydrological cycle, moving through conditions of uh, atmospheric gases liquid water or sort of solid state ice, that 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 has now been disrupted in a way. And so what the book tries to do is really think about, and that's the sort of subtitle of the book, Ice at the Ends of Climate Change. And ends in this case are both, um, are, I guess they're really like three things. Firstly, it's um, the sort of geographical poles, of course, uh, and the book attends to, and tries to create a kind of uh, what I call a kind of drift path theory. So following environmental phenomena in this case, ice through its dissolution. Uh, And what are the, yeah, what's, um, what does it let us see when it comes to, of course, acceleration of carbon effects, um, the ethical responsibilities of what I call the carbon subject, which is largely, you know, Western urban, and the sort of benefits of carbon, um, the carbon economy. And um, so when you follow this drift path, you know where does it lead, who does it implicate? Um, and um, so this, yeah, so it really begins, the book opens at 66 degrees north latitudes and then travels in terms of its structure by degree by degree, uh, moving to 66 degrees south. Um, and the second sense of ENDS is also, a kind of means-ends relationship. So, like ice at the ends of climate change, thinks about ice as a kind of subject uh, that has become, um, uh, you know, subject to the conditions of global warming. And so, giving ice a kind of agency when it comes to experiencing um, experiencing warming. And uh, again, this in in this book, well, more so foreground experiences of largely in some of the places i've been Inuit community members who are experiencing accelerating uh accelerate accelerating amplified climate effects through global warming and what this means for their experiences of ice in their communities and sometimes this can be very ambiguous for example like in um in Lulusat, in Kalaallit nunat in greenland um, where there's a really important um glacier one of the fastest calving glaciers in the world but it's also become a kind of magnet for a kind of dark tourism uh coming to experience um, global warming at its most iconic in a sense So icebergs calve off the face of this glacier um, and of course it's really important to the local economy that people come there and want to experience and have this proximity to the glacier um that's called uh, cemek Kushalik and in that sense um there's a real there's a real ambiguity to the kind of economies that get built up out of ice acceler- accelerated ice loss and so it sort of spends time in that ambiguity and understands what the ends you know what are the in terms of a means ends relationship who benefits who doesn't and how ice is implicated there and then the last sense of ends is, um, in the book, I build up concept of end media. And so these are like experiences, not like of the end times, <laughs> but uh, a kind of uh, trying to put forward ice as opening these stories of where, uh, you know, carbon effects are most manifest. Because of course, because of the albedo effect um, at the poles, global warming's effects are amplified and they're and in a way they kind of are making those locations into a kind of future, uh, space of what anticipating for people who live at more southerly latitudes will come in a sense, similarly to like vertical, uh, spaces like high mountain glaciers, etc. Uh, but in this case it's even more pronounced. And so in media, our ways of building stories, and this is very similar to slow disturbance through different, uh, my own photographic practice through archival media, uh, through a range of yeah different some there's more art actually in this book, uh, uh, and so thinking about yeah how and media are stories we can tell that open up for different forms of accountability around um, yeah the effects of global warming and how the carbon subject is really. Uh, centered by and needs to I mean I'm I'm struggling now it's just the book is done more or less the manuscript um, is out through Duke and yeah I'm really hopeful it'll be out in a couple of years but it's yeah something I'm struggling with now is like the as with any book is a bit of like the like to and what I try I hope at least for slow disturbance is is not is is not is the sort of so what question that what are the stakes and what what do you do with this and i think to me and maybe it's yeah it's something i need to in a sense like clarify further but ultimately it's a kind of um it's a way of telling the story of global warming that um that and maybe I'm being a bit cynical, <laughs> doesn't lead towards like a true, like uh, sense of urgency around needing to act, uh, but rather it just tells the story. And it's a kind of documentary enterprise that makes it available um, for, I hope, like, and this is where this question of readership and publics gets opened up, but I hope it becomes a kind of story that lets Uh, You know, maybe uh, community members in Nunavut in Canada see, okay, like um, there are ways of telling this story that recognize how Southern settler um, uh, harm has been enacted. And it's like, it's a kind of documentary enterprise that makes uh, effects that aren't normally understood or pointed out makes them manifest as what I call these end media and can, yeah, it can really obviously make themselves available to reconstitute and tell another story. But I think um, that's, that's the ambition for the book. So we'll see. <laughs> uh, but it's really, yeah, And I totally encourage you Padma to, to sort of take up a, it really started as a kind of like side project for me during my dissertation field work. And um, so, yeah, it's a way of, of giving yourself a kind of outlet to think alongside other concerns that are emerging through your primary primary project, but then have yeah, have these concerns grow with you and evolve over time.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a super fascinating project, though. I'm really excited for it, and I'm excited to read it. Um, and in the meanwhile, for those listening, I hope you pick up your copy of Slow Disturbance um, and engage more deeply with the book. Um, thank you so much, Rafiko.
1: Thanks, Padma. Thanks for initiating this conversation.